that was a great baptism. Um, if you don't know Glenn and Elise, Adam's parents are sitting right over here, and they're lots of family members, and I, you know, sister, fiance, uh, you know, parents, when our children come to faith, and then they publicly profess that, um, boy, there's very few things left in the world that really will satisfy you. Uh, it's like, okay, Lord, I'm ready to go home. <laughs> My children know you, and uh, so what a blessing, uh, uh, to see that. So thank you, um, Canfield family. Father in heaven, we thank you that uh, you are the one who saves. It's not done on any of our own works. We could never have any insurance if it was based on any of that. It is our salvation is assured on your work of your son. And we have great assurance because of his finished work. And Lord, that propels us to be serious about our lives, about dealing with sin, about repenting and walking with you and allowing the spirit to dominate our life, Lord, the word to direct us. And so, Lord, we thank you for Adam's public profession of faith to this congregation, to his family. But it's a reminder that all of us who have had our sins washed away by the finished work of Christ and have professed him to be our Savior and Lord, we now live on in this life. And we live to serve you, to make you Lord of our life. We have to fight our flesh and battle the world and Satan and all those things that plague us in this life. But you give us everything we need to overcome those things. And so, Lord, as we look to your word and the reminder of a nation that didn't do that, didn't trust you, May we not be like them, but may we be like those who have faith that is pleasing to God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Entitled this sermon, A Circular Nature of Sin. Now, as I get into this first chapter of Deuteronomy, see how far I get tonight. Um, one of the effects of the sin that we see in the nation of Israel is they kept repeating it. And I think that's the danger of sin. It loves to keep you in this cyclatory cycle. And you can spend years in it going around and you'll never get anywhere when it's all done. I think even Christians can be in that. I don't think you stay in it because a real Christian won't live in sin their entire life. But we can find ourselves in a cyclatory pattern of sin and not making any progress to be more like our Lord Jesus Christ. Just a Wednesday or so before Christmas, I gave an introduction to Deuteronomy. If you had not heard that, I invite you to go online and listen to that. I gave a very in-depth detail of it, uh, author and time and date and place and all those type of things. But some of the things we talked about, it's a good reminder to, to know that this book is a very precious book. Um, it's, it's, it's Moses, a, dead, a dying man, speaking to us. Uh, a great leader who is telling us what God wants us to know. And so as you study it, you begin to realize it's a very precious book. It's very uh, sermonette, sermon, sermonettes, one after another as he prepares the people to go in the nation, go into the land of Canaan. Jesus loved the book of Deuteronomy. He quoted it in his temptation. You remember I talked about this. All three scriptures quoted by Jesus to Satan came out of the book of Deuteronomy. He used it often throughout his ministry. 
The apostles picked up on it. They quoted it or alluded to over 200 times. And so it, it is a book that is constantly referenced in the New Testament. It is also a call to the nation to respond to the grace of God. God has been tremendously gracious to them. It's a call to them to remember, remember what I've done. If you forget what God has done for you, you are bound to get in a very cyclatory, sinful pattern. And that's the lessons here. There is much to learn about grace and love in this book. You'll see the grace of God and love all through it. And you see how it calls us to, to loyalty to our Lord. Are we loyal to the Lord of glory? You'll see them pushing, the word of God pushing you towards that obedience and loyalness. And it has a strong emphasis on faith. The problem is Israel lacked faith. And it kept, put them in, kept putting them in this circulatory nature of sin. And they would go around and round. And like that, we see Christianity like that as well. I was reading one commentary and, and gave a story of an old foolish man who had a very nagging wife. Um, and he didn't have much money, but he wanted to ride an old merry-go-round. It set way back uh, in early 1900s. And he only had just enough money to ride the merry-go-round. And she kept badgering, why do you want to do this? It's a waste of money. But he took his last nickel or whatever it was and got on the merry-go-round, and he went around and around and around. And when he was done, she said, well, are you satisfied? You spent all your money. You got off right where you got on. You went nowhere. Now, I'm not sure you want that wife. <laughs> <laughs> but the illustration is good. <laughs> Israel spends 38 years going around and around because of lack of faith. And that's what the book is about. To remind us not to be like that. Not to wander in our own sinful wilderness. But to trust God and these lessons now are given to the next generation. You have to remember when you study this, all of their parents are dead. <laughs> They're gone because of this. And this next generation is given this opportunity not to repeat what their parents have done. As the first chapter unfolds, we find the nation. They're camped on the east side of Jordan. They're looking across into the promised land. They're just about ready to go in, and Moses has now led them for 40 years. He has been their leader. And he himself knows the importance of delivering God's word to these people as they prepare to go in. I think it's very significant that these are the last words of Moses. Moses, think about this, knows when he's going to die, the place he's going to die, because it's been predetermined by God. Now, some of that's true by us, too, right? We know that God knows our time and place that we're going to die, but Moses actually knows it. And so I love listening to Moses. Just reading the text makes me feel I'm sitting with an older pastor and listening to his wisdom. And I hope you find that as we go through this uh, book together. There's a unique aspect to the history lesson here. Moses is rehearsing these physical aspects of the, nature, or of the nature of the wanderings of the nation of Israel. But at the same time, he's unveiling spiritual aspects that, are, that have to be central to them as they go on to be God's people in the nation of Israel. And they're going to come out. And I think so often you and I can get lost in the daily grind of life. 
Life under the sun, life in the fallen world is difficult. We wrestle with our flesh. We wrestle against principalities of this world. We wrestle against these things. And yet God's gracious hand is there guiding us. And so all through this, you'll see that God is there. He's trying to help them. He's guiding and directing them. And yet they have to be reminded that the same truth was given to their fathers and their mothers before them, and they rejected it. And so you see the kindness of God in this. These lessons are illustrated throughout the Bible. I was just thinking about a few, and you can't help but think like Job. God tested Job, and yet he was there all along. Abraham and Hannah and David and Joseph and Mary and and the disciples himself all went through difficult times, times of testing, and yet the gracious hand and the loving, loving God was there guiding them through that. You can't forget that during difficult times. Sometimes we see the reasons why God takes us through deep waters, and sometimes you won't know that until you get to heaven. And I think probably predominantly many of the things we go through, we won't know fully why. But God does this because he wants us to learn, learn to live by faith and not by sight. That is a battle. And I, as I was studying this today, even I thought, Lord, that's probably the strongest battle of the Christian today. Can I live by faith versus sight? It's a battle, isn't it? And if you don't think it is, you're probably not thinking deeply about the spiritual life. So much of what we have is by sight. Our finances, you can look in your checkbook or look online, I guess, now, eh? um, and see what you have. Every, every, so much of what we do is by sight. And yet, the Bible says that God is pleased while we live by faith. And all of what we see, particularly in this first couple chapters of Deuteronomy, is because they wouldn't live by faith, they lived by sight. And their sight deceived them against the word of God. God promised them, I will destroy them, I will take them out, I'll drive them out. But in their sight, they could not live by faith. And so this is the battle that is given to us so we can learn to remember what God has done for us, that he has not forgot us, he will deliver on his promises, but we must live by faith. Well, let's look at a few thoughts and see how far we can get the, this evening. Number one, sin makes a short trip extremely long. Number one, sin makes a short trip extremely long. We looked at the first five verses in that introduction, so I won't read all of those. But when we get to verse two, there's kind of a bombshell that explodes all the way through the beginning of verse three. Look at it with me. In the 11-day journey, it is 11-day journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea in the 40th year. Now stop right there. There's got to jump out at you that this 11-day journey, because that's all it's supposed to take in verse 2, is interrupted in verse 3 with 40 years. Something went deadly wrong when an 11-day journey turns into 40 years. The book of Numbers shows us that it took them actually three months uh, to move from Mount Sinai um, after the departure of Egypt and move from Sinai, from Egypt to Sinai. It took them three months there and then they journeyed from Kadesh Barnea and the 10 spies went into the land and they spied out for another 40 days and 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 as we study all of the texts, as we went through the book of Numbers, we realized it was roughly about two years 
since they had left Egypt to where they're at the border the very first time in Kadesh Barnea trying to obey God there. And we know that because you look at chapter 2, verse 14, it tells us those things. Now the time it took us from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook of Zerda was 38 years until all the generation of men of war perished within the camp as the Lord had sworn, sworn to them. So the first two years was leaving Egypt and going to Sinai and then making your way all the way to, to the border and then there the rejection of God. So two years has passed. And now for 38 years, it's going to take them to go 11 days. Now, in verse 2, we want to remind you that Mount Horeb refers to uh, the mountain range. I, 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 we're, still, we're still getting our stuff together upstairs. I, I had pictures, but I thought I wouldn't put that on them up there. But you remember when I was in Numbers, I was showing you pictures of that very, very rocky mountain range that this is. Well, that's the Mount Horeb. It refers to that range. And within that Mount Horeb mountain range, that very rocky, uh, very high hills, mountains, is Mount Sinai. And it's about 150 miles north. Um, the border is about 150 miles north of Mount Sinai. Um, and it's south of the Dead Sea, of course. This was all Esau's territory. And so you know they had to take on the Edomites as they journeyed coming up to this land. Now, Kadesh Barnea was about 50 miles or so north of Mount Seir where they're at the first time they come to the border. And then, of course, they're turned around. So that, that's, that's kind of the introduction of verse 1 through 5. Let's pick up 6, and, six through 8. The Lord, the Lord our God spoke to us at Horeb saying, you, shall stay long in, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and set your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors of Arabah in the hill country and in the lowlands of the Gave, by the sea coast, in the lands of the Canaanites, Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have placed the land before you. Go in, possess the land which is which the Lord swore to give to your father Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob, to them and their descendants after them. Of course, now we're into the history lesson. This is what they were told before the rebellion. Got to remember what's happening now. The new generation is is now not in Kadesh Barnea, they're over on the east side of the Jordan River. They've gone around, they circled around down here and ended up over here to go in. But what now he's going to do is rehearse what happened. And so he reminds them that they had come to this spot. And it's here where Israel rejected God the very first time. And they were sent into the wilderness. And what should have taken place was the Israelites um, should have had a few weeks and they should have been in the promised land and instead it turned to 38 years because of their lack of trust in God's word. Now here in Deuteronomy 1, they're standing on, the, on another border looking across the Jordan getting ready to go in. But as you study this, you see both judgment and the grace of God within this text. And because of their disobedience, they wandered in these endless circles and uh, some of the better maps... Um, choose to try to find some areas where they go because we do see some markings in in numbers and and it really is they really did circle their way several times around the wilderness before they ended up where they are and because of that that was all because of their disobedience they wandered endlessly they backtracked they turned many twists and turns and think about this if you've ever been in that country the summer's extremely hot and the winters are extremely cold and they didn't do it for one winter. They did it for 38 winters. And there is God in the midst of all of that judgment still providing grace. 
He fed them. He led them. Their shoes never wore out. He kept his promises, and now he's got them on the doorstep of the promised land. And in the middle of that group is the seed of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, thinking about this in our own personal lives, why are we so slow to obey and believe God? Why are we so slow? And how many times do we have to go through circles and backtracking because of our disobedience? Anybody been out in the wilderness? I've seen a few of you out there. Like, hey, how you doing, Josh? Yeah, trying to learn to trust the Lord. Me too. Right, you've been out there with me. I've seen you. We get out there every once in a while because we decide to say, I'm going to live by sight, not by faith. And we find ourselves out there in a very discouraging time, wandering around out there. God's still good to us. God still meets our needs. But we're wandering around out there. We have no joy. We're struggling. We know we should be in the promised land, but we're out there goofing around because we can't obey. This happens to all of us, doesn't it, from time to time? We haven't learned to trust God. You know, God constantly tells his people not to fear, right? Angels tell, speak for God, don't fear. But we fear. We look at situations and we become fearful. Now, that, 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 once you become fearful and don't trust the Lord, now your eyes are off of the Lord and you start to sink like Peter and bad things begin to happen. And so these first couple of chapters in Deuteronomy the rehearsal of the nation's history is coming out here, and what's coming out is this unbelief. And if, but I, I thought this today, I said, Lord, if you mapped out my last 40 years, because you know every heart, every thought in me and every way within me, and you map that out, and, and everybody in the world could look at, whoa, Scott's doubting and fears are here. Wow. How much doubt and fear do you have? I think one of the things we have to remember is God knows about it. And he's watching it. But when we get back to the nation, even before they reach the border of Canaan, the nation shows themselves to be grumblers and complainers, right? They grumbled. They have a tremendous lack of faith in God. But despite that, God keeps doing great things. I want you to look at 9 through 18, how kind God is. Now, this was all during times of grumbling that God does. Verse 9, I spoke to you, Moses here speaking to the nation, God speaking through him. I spoke to you at that time saying, I am not able to bear the burden of you alone. Remember, this goes all the way back into Exodus 2 that this nation was so great, um, Moses was judging them by himself. His, his father-in-law, Jethro, comes along and says, what are you doing? How, how are you going to manage all these people by yourself? And he begins to set up people, and this is the recording of that. And this is God's wisdom to Moses to how to handle this nation. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are... This day, like the stars of heaven in, in number. And that's exactly what he told Abraham he would be. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousandfold more than you are and bless you just as he has promised you. But how can I alone bear the load and burden of you and your strife? That's an interesting word I've marked in my Bible. They caused a lot of strife. How can I carry this? So verse 13, God loses and choose wise and discerning and experienced men from your tribes, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me and said, the thing which you have said to do is good. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and appointed them heads over you, leaders of thousands and of hundreds and fifties and tens and officers of your tribes. Then I charged your judges at the time, saying, hear the cases between your fellow countrymen right, and judge righteously between man and the fellow countrymen or the alien who is with 
them with him. And you shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall bear the small and the great alike. And you should not fear man, for judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. I command you at that time all the things that you should do. And so here we see God caring for them. He's setting up government within them to help care for them. There's a government among them. You can imagine with, with a law given, but no one to make the decisions on it, how chaotic it would have been. So God making this nation who is going to wander for these coming years, because this is given before that, he's given them a way to deal with their issues. And it's just the kindness of God. And so I, I, as I look at this, the nation has everything it needs for success except faith. And that's the problem. God's given them everything. He's given them food and water out of rocks. He's given them government to function. Their shoes don't wear out. He gives them man. He gives them all those things. But what they don't have is faith. And they crash and burn. In Hebrews, it starts out that great hall of faith chapter says that without faith, it's impossible to what? To please God. And so we find a nation that's very unpleasing to God. Number two, the sin of rebellion Son of rebellion. Look at verses 19 through 26 with me. When they set out from Horeb, they went throughout all the great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites. He's reminding the young people, you saw this too. Just as the Lord our God has commanded us, and we came to Kadesh Barnea. So we're back in the history, right? This is the first generation coming up to the, to the border of Canaan. I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites which the Lord our God is about to give us. See, the Lord your God has placed the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you approached me and said, let us send men before us that they may search out the land for us and bring back word of the way by which we should go up and the cities which are, we shall enter. And the thing pleased me. And I took 12 of your men, one man from each tribe. And they turned and they went up to the hill country and came to the valley of Eskel and spied it out. And then they took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it, to us, brought it down to us. And they brought us back a report and said, it is a good land which the Lord, our God, is about to give us. Yet, you were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord, your God. Well, here again, Moses is rehearsing history with this new generation. And he's showing the devastating nature of rebellious sin and how it overtook their fathers there in Kadesh Barnea. And, it, and it's here where God revokes. He takes away their privilege for the promised land of this older generation. And it's only those who are under 20, under fighting age, and of course Joshua and Caleb that receive this. But you can see the goodness of God all weave through this, right? Verse 20, which the Lord your God is about to give you. Verse 21, the Lord your God has placed the land before you. Uh, verse 25, towards the end, is a good land which the Lord our God is about to give you. Give, 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 give. Over and over, that's our God giving something that isn't theirs to them. Now, here we begin to see the effects of these three particular sins. 
and they're brought out, they bring on the judgment of God. First, notice the clear rebellion of sin. Look at verse 26. You were not willing to go up. So it's a setting a will against God. And then here's our key word, but rebelled. You turned away from God. And you turned away from his commands. And likely you could just say you turned away from his word. And Israel had now openly rebelled against the revealed word of God. And God told them to go up and take it. But they would not. And despite all that clear reasoning that Joshua, remember Joshua and Caleb gave in Numbers chapter 14, he gave them, hey, God's given this, let's go. They were, they were the cheerleaders. They were trying to encourage them to go. And despite all that, and Moses pleading to believe the word of God, they would not change their minds. They set their heels in against God, and rebellion came out of them. And they, listen, there's no other way to send, say this. They simply said no to God. There's no other way to put that. No, God, I will not do that. And this is a sin of rebellion. They knew the truth. They knew what they were to do. There's no, there's no way around that. One of the ways we used to parent our children is we would give instruction to them, but we would make sure they heard that instruction. Okay, son, okay, so can you repeat back to me what dad's asked you to do? We'd have them repeat that back so they knew exactly. Okay, so we're clear on what the instructions are. And then when they didn't do it, it was rebellion. And we could show them the darkness of their heart, the sinfulness that was there. There was no excuses. And that's what it does. And James certainly affirms that. It says, to the one who knows the right thing to do but does not do it, to him it is what? It is sin. Isaiah 53, that great chapter, um, has to be, could only be fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ, but also has us in it. It says, all us like sheep have gone astray in verse 6. Each one has turned to his own way. And I think there's a good definition of sin. I think one of the most simplest form is turning one's back on God and his word and deciding to go your own way. Uh, That's a great definition of rebellion. God, I know what you tell me to do. I turn my back to you and your word, and I'm going to go the other way. Rebellion is something, parents, you need to watch with your children. It leads to such devastating sin. It's something that you have to, with the gospel clear, you have to take on that. Rebellion leads to tremendous problems. It started in heaven, Satan rebelled against God, and he was thrown out. It worked its way to the garden, and Adam and Eve rebelled against God, rejected the word, and they're thrown out of the garden. And with them went us. And we're plunged the whole entire race into sin. And so man lives because of sinful rebellion. But God's word says that Jesus, he's the way, the truth, and the life. And every day, there are people who reject Jesus Christ. They rebel against God's plan for their life. But Christians, we we do the same thing at times. We know what God says. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. There's a picture of the church. Children, obey your parents. Love one another. Forgive one another. These truths are all through the scriptures. We know them, we quote them. And yet we make tremendous amount of excuses not to obey them. In reality, they're rebellion. Yeah, you've been hurt. Yeah, you've been wronged. 
Our Lord hung on a cross. There's nobody more wronged than him. Forgive him. That's what he did. Forgive them. Sin of rebellion will knock you off the course, brothers and sisters, and it'll send you into a spiral into the wilderness. Repent of it, or it'll take you somewhere you don't want to be. Third, the sin of unbelief, 27 through 33. Look at this with me. And you grumbled in your tents. (laughs) God sees you everywhere you grumble. And says, because the Lord hates us. Whoa. Did you guys catch that in verse 27? Their whole view of the character of God changed because they're rebellious. I watch people do this too often. They start to change their view of God because they don't want to repent of something. I watch this happen all the time. I've seen it happen in my own life because you try to justify things, right? Because the Lord God hates us? He destroyed the superworld power of Egypt before you. He split the seas. He fed you food from heaven. I mean, we can't even get our mind around that. And this is what happens when you fall into the sin of rebellion and here now we're going to go into the sin of unbelief. This is what happens. Your view of God changes. And it's deadly. Notice he says he's brought you out of the land of Egypt. That covers all those things I was talking about. And delivered us from the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Remember, they came out, they're going to destroy them. God wiped them out completely without even their help. Verse 28, where can we go up? Our brethren may have made our hearts melt, saying the people are bigger and uh, taller than us. Oh, we're scared. The cities are large and fortified in heaven. And besides, we saw the sons of Anakim, Goliath people. Yeah, that's... uh, it's really hard when God can turn water into blood and bring hail down to kill every living thing that it hits and, and then, of course, wipe out the firstborn. But this is what happened to them. Their view of God changed. Their theology changed. See, that's what rebellion and unbelief will do. Your theology will change. And then I said to you, do not be shocked nor fear them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf. I love that. Wow. Yeah, we've watched you do that, God. Just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you just as a man carries his son. Isn't that precious? Don't tell me God is not this kind and gentle God in the Old Testament. I mean, that's a nurturing father who carries his son whose legs are too tired at Disneyland. We're on a walk. We've all had it. You're just too tired, Dad. I can't go any farther. Come on, let me carry you. Let me carry you. I mean, that's the tenderness of our God. Notice in all the ways which you have walked until you came to this place, I've been there doing this. But for all of this, here is the sin that I'm after. Number two, number three here, but the second sin. You did not trust the Lord your God who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and cloud by day to show the way in which you should go. So I think verse 32 is that key verse. You did not trust in the Lord your God. See, he's describing willful unbelief. 
And it's a challenging, now, there's challenging obstacles. If you look at this, and, and, and being in that country, and Gina and I marveled at it and said, how did two million people walk around here? This was not easy country. And yet, God says, I'm going to go before you. And God's word is clear. He would give them the land. He would care for them. He would carry them like a child. And from the moment Joseph arrived in Egypt, he had been providing demonstrations of his power and his authority and his faithfulness. He breaks a bond of slavery. He splits the seas. He cares for them in every aspect. He reveals his character to them through the law. Repeatedly, he, he gives them what they don't deserve even though they worship a pagan god in front of them. But remember, faith, as Hebrews 11.1 1 said, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So they're slipping into sin because they're, they're living by sight, not by faith. And that's a lesson for us, brothers and sisters. Do you want to stay out of sin? Do you want to be a worshiper and full of joy? We have to learn to live by faith. There's a day, look, there's a day coming you're going to get to live by sight. You're going to see your loved ones. You go, there they are. There's my Savior. There's the nail prints in his hands. There's the, the throne in the crystal sea. There's the tree of life. There's a day coming, brothers and sisters. And either by death or by rapture, you're going to be in the presence of our Savior. But now he tells us to live by faith. And faith alone. They had all the physical evidence. They had all the power of God seen in front of them, but they could not believe. And certainly this is a disconnect with the depravity of man today, right? And, and even times and dates and places, they struggle in their fallen condition. They have no idea what God's doing. And, and all through the Old Testament, we see evidence of that. I, I just reading through Job, and man, does God rebuke Job's three friends. Because what you saw, you judged. And you had no idea what I was doing, and you spoke out of line. Now, if you're lucky, we're going to have Job out for a sacrifice for you. <laughs> and you better hope he does it for you. Because I'm about ready to wipe you out, is the theme. You kind of feel like it. God is unhappy with them. So, we see the same thing in the New Testament. I mean, just go through a few thousand years further. I just picked one example. Jump into John 11. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Don't roll back that stone, Lord. By now, in the King James, he stinketh. I was raised in the King James. Never forget that passage. You're four years old and you hear that. <laughs> you know what they did right in that same passage? The Jews left there and plotted how they would kill him. No faith. No faith in God that he would send this one who would show them that he was equal with the Father. No faith in that. And so they too died. And Jesus said, you will die in your sins. He told them that. And they did. Except for a few like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. So true belief or faith is connected to believing God's word. Do you believe God's word? Do you believe, he says, forgive because you have been forgiven? We Look, just one final thought on this. is We don't understand everything, right? Um, uh, the Christian life is a journey. The Bible uses terms like growing 
in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. Uh, a continual tense of being made in the image of Christ, 2 Corinthians uh, 3.18. And so there, there certainly is a process, a journey the Lord has taken us through. We don't understand everything, but we are moving forward by faith that God is doing a work in us. And that's the difference here. Fourth, the rages of sin and the reward of faith. Um, verses 34 through 40. Then the Lord heard the sound of your words. Ooh. <laughs> Anybody said anything lately they wish they wouldn't have? This, this reminds us the Lord is attentive to us. He is listening. The Lord heard the sounds of your words and he was angry and took an oath saying, not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give to his fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jethunah, he shall see it, and to him and his sons, and I will give the land on which he has set foot, because he has followed the Lord fully. And the Lord was angry with me, Moses says, also on your account. It's interesting there, we talk about that at a later time. Saying, not even you shall enter there. He struck a rock, he stepped in front of the authority of God. He acted faithless. Verse 38, Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter there, encourage him, for he will cause Israel to inherit it. He's going to be the new leader. That's already been determined at the end of, in the book of Numbers. Moreover, your little ones, whom you said will become prey, remember all that in Numbers 14, and your sons, who this day have no knowledge of good and evil, that doesn't mean they were not sinners born that way. It means they did not have a full knowledge yet. They, they had to learn and understand the effects of sin and, and righteousness and all those things. Shall enter, and I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. But as for you, older generation, turn around and set out for the wilderness. Man, could you imagine hearing that? You said that I'm going to kill your children. I mean, what their attack was directly against God. It says, okay, as for you, out you go. <laughs> I mean, I read this and I get nervous. <laughs> I mean, you go, oh, Lord, I want to walk with you. Please help me live my faith. <laughs> oh, I don't want your discipline hand like this. I think it's worth looking at. Look at Numbers 14, just real quick. There's a couple of phrases in here that really struck me. I went back and reread the account today. Numbers chapter 14, verse 22. This is the actual account when it took place at Kadesh Barnea. Surely all the men who have seen my glory, that's what caught my attention. You've seen my glory. Well, what's he talking about? Well, certainly probably physical. They saw the mountain. They saw this incredible display of the power of God, not only the mountain, but they seen his glory and all his marvelous works that he did, splitting seas, drowning Egyptian armies. I mean, they saw his glory and who he is. The character of God was on full display. You saw his glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not listened to my voice shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers. This is all the sin of unbelief, right? And of course, Caleb will be given it in there. But that, boy, did that strike me again today. I thought, 
Oh, Lord, there's so many of us Christians who have seen your glory through the Son. John said we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. We, the uniqueness of the, of the, the word, right? The, the Son of God, uh, the fullness of God was put on display through his Son. And you and I see that when we look to the cross and are saved and walk our life according to him. We've seen his glory. And so many times when people said, I'm worried about my child, I'll say, have they seen his glory yet? Have, have they been amazed with who he is yet? Well, no. We'll pray that they see his glory. And here, there was a physical demonstration of it. And so I think in this passage, which you're seeing here, what jumped out at me is you see both the wages of sin, but then you see the rewarding of faith, right? There's the Caleb and Joshua, but then there's the wages of sin out to the wilderness with you. And that sin is unbelief in the rejection of the glory of God. But look, don't miss the patience of God here too. The scripture tells us 10 times Israel tested him with really unforgivable unbelief and, and rebellion, right? I mean, they fell down and worshiped a god, a, an Egyptian bull calf, right? They did that. They danced around him. And despite of all that, and despite God's glory and love and provision and tenderness as he cares for them, they rejected him. And so he's a very patient God. I, I, just even as Christians, you think about us as his children, he, he doesn't discipline us like whatever we deserve, Right? He does get after us. He loves, he disciplines the ones he loves. But boy, you know we deserve more. He's a kind father, isn't he? And he's always drawing us to himself. And yet these 10 times, it tells us that they rebelled against him. And so we read this story. Look, Christian, I, I read this story and I see the severe judgment. But, but now being a little more mature Christian now, boy, I see his mercy. And I'm drawn to that. Wow, He's kind even when we sin against him. And yet as we look at the church today and, and its stubborn unbelief of the word of God and their desire now so much of the church around the world, particularly in the United States, they desire self-identification. They want to be who they think they want to be versus being identified in Christ. The church desires to shape God into their image. Not us into his image. That's what they're trying to do. When they deny all the things they're denying from marriage to gender and so forth, they're, they're denying the image maker. And they're saying, God, you be like us, not us like you. And so they reject the clear word. And I think Deuteronomy is a good warning for the church. Paul used it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He said these things were given for us. That this, these examples for us, chapter 10, verse 5 and 6 and 7, don't be an idolater. People sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. These are, these are given for our sake. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands, verse 12, take heed lest he falls. And then he gives us the encouragement. There's no temptation that's overtaken you that's common to man. God's faithful. He'll get you out of this. He'll help you. But these, all these examples are given for us to say, oh, that's what happens when you put your heels in the ground. God will deal with it. Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. Don't miss this section on judgment and the wages of sin and the rewarding of faith. Look at verse 36 and 38. Except Caleb. Verse 38, and Joshua. Men of faith. If you go back to 14 and number 14 and watch them plead with the people. Only men of faith would stand against an entire nation. Two guys against two million. Are you ready to do that? 
It might happen in the United States someday. That's kind of the ratio that it'll probably be. A couple of churches saying, no, we will obey God. Well, we're going to throw you in the fire furnace. Yep, you might have to do that. And he may not save us out of it, but we are not recanting. That's, that's what we're headed for. And if we think we're going to get out of that, we don't know church history. <laughs> that's the way it works. Fifth, the sin of presumption. Let me do this quickly here because we're out of time. Then you said to me, we have sinned against the Lord. We will indeed go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every man of you girded up his weapons of war and regarded it as easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up nor fight, for I am not among you. Otherwise, you will be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, but you did not listen. Instead, you rebelled against the command of the Lord, and here's my point, and acted presumptuously and went up into the hill country. And the Amorites who lived in the hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do, crushed you from Seir to Hormah. And then you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh many days in the days that you spent there. Well, here the story of Israel's presumptuous sin is clarified, isn't it? Verse 43 there. And as soon as God exposed Israel's rebellion and ordered them to the wilderness, they have this emotional, sinful, emotional backlash to God, right? And, and they respond by doing exactly what he told them not to do again. And the story clearly reveals that the nation decided to go up against the Canaanites, or the Amorites here, without God's approval, despite his warning. In keeping with their sin of rebellion and their sin of unbelief, they didn't listen, and so now they have the sin of presuming on God. And now we're into that threefold layer of a sin. Sin of rebellion, sin of unbelief, sin of presumption. And the results are just a complete failure. In verse 44, the Bible says that they ran them out like bees chasing children. And what's so interesting, just after the law was given, he promised them that they would go into this land in Exodus 23, 28, and they would go there, and he would be like hornets that would chase the people out. <laughs> now, the bees are chasing them back out. I looked up just presumptuous word on definition and googled it here and chased down a few just to think, see how this applies and see if I can make a connection there. First one that came out said, an idea that is taken to be true and often uses the basis for other ideas, although it is not known for certain. I said, oh, okay, that can probably be that. Next one, behavior perceives as arrogant, disrespectful, and transgressing the limits of what is permitted or appropriate. Ah, there we go, that's Israel. Fourth, um, uh, third one, to take upon oneself without permission and authority. They did not have permission and authority to go in there. Then the third one, and this was interesting, this was on Google, whatever search site it was on, it said, as a result to religion in general, it is a bold and daring confidence in your own goodness, but disobedient to God's will. Google finally got something right. And that's what they did. And I think that's a clear example of Israel's presumptuous sin here. They took matters into their own hands without permission or authority of God. They rejected his word again. Now look, brothers and sisters, here's the opposite. Faith is going when God tells you to go. 
Faith says, God, if you tell us to go, we'll go. Sin is when God tells us to go and promises to be with us, but we refuse to go. But when God commanded the Israelites not to go, they went. And so there's this sin of presumption. And so the sin of presumption is constantly unveiled in the depravity of man. But Christians will sin presumptuously as well, too. We try to accomplish God's word solely on our own energy, right? We call that sola bootstraptus, or at least I call it that, right? I'm just gonna, I'm gonna get myself out of this. Man, you find yourself doing laps out in the wilderness. We often behave like this nation, don't we? And we fail to obey God and then we blunder our way through things and we make worse of it. Instead of asking your spouse to forgive you, you go and you try to defend yourself and it just gets worse and now the argument, ah. Now the children are nervous because the parents aren't like-minded. Now they begin to wonder what God's like. You can just see how sin just wears down truth in the eyes of those who look on. Instead of finding spiritual victories God's way, we try to do it our own. I think the church does that sometimes. We, instead of soul winning and going out and tell people about Jesus, your neighbor, and meet somebody on the beach or walking or doing something and get a chance, pray for opportunities to share... I think the church has got, at least the American church, is about, well, let's give the church and let's hope Scott preaches the right passage. And I hope he doesn't get into that tough passage because then they're going to be offended and never leave. And then you come up to me afterwards and say, Pastor, I had my friend here. And you were talking about doctrines of grace and election. And they're mad and they left. Did you ever tell them about the gospel? This is a great opportunity for you to go back. See, we, we do this. We, we have church programs. Well, let's just get into this program instead of sharing the gospel with them, right? Can I tell you what I believe? You don't have to bowl them over. Tell them what you believe. Tell them where you were headed, where, what sin was doing to you. Tell them what God has done for you. If they don't like it, you can't fix that. But tell, don't tell them they're in trouble. Tell them you were in trouble. And they may walk out and go, that guy was a lot worse than I thought he was. I don't know what his problem is. Or God may bring them to conviction. Now, Hebrews 11.6, I'll close with this. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Because without faith, it is what? It's impossible, right? So let me, let me ask you something. Why does God allow or send trouble into your life? Right? He could stop it. He's God. So why does he do that? Brothers and sisters, it is because he wants us to come to him. What they should have done on that border and said, God, we're scared, but you said, but we're scared and we need you, God. And you don't think that God who picks up children in the wilderness and carries them would have said, it'll be okay, trust me, we're going in. But instead, they rebelled. And so God does that to teach us to trust him and put our faith in him daily, even though you and I sometimes think we, we think it may be getting better, but it'll just get worse sometimes because we're trying to do it on our own. 
But here's what faith says. Faith says this, and I just jotted some things down here. Faith says, Heavenly Father, I'm not going to try to analyze everything you're allowing in my life, but I know and believe that you have the power to sustain me through this trial. And I know you're a faithful God who always is truthful. Help me in my unbelief. I believe the gospel, Lord Jesus, that you came and you manifested your full glory of your Father through your incarnation and you were, you were, you, you were crucified on a cross and you were buried and you were resurrected and you gave us your word. And so I can tell you, Father, that I believe you and I trust you are always going to act in your perfection despite my circumstances, what my circumstances are telling me. I believe, Lord, because you have given me faith. Help me in my unbelief. See, this is how we fight that stuff off. This is how we have victory and we have joy again as Christians. And this is what they didn't have. Father, Oh, there's so much there to unpack as we look at the history of a nation that walks through 40 years in, in a chapter or two. But we can see ourselves that, Lord, if we're honest, there are times we just won't believe your word, whether we want to be honest about that or not. There's just times where we know your, what your Bible says, Lord, and we can't get over our circumstances. And so, Lord, I pray, and I pray this on behalf of my brothers and sisters here, help our unbelief. You told us to live by faith, and you told us that it's pleasing to you when we do that. Lord, it's a lot of joy, Lord, when we live by faith. Lord, help us not give that up. Help us live for you. Thank you for the congregation to be here tonight, Lord. I pray we're encouraged by this. Thank you for Adam. Thank you for his family. Bless them, protect them, Lord. Grow them in the faith, Lord. Help us all to love you more, Lord, no matter what circumstances come our way. In Jesus' name, amen. See you Sunday.